Hello, I'm Alex Rackkeen. I'm a barrister at Durban Essex Chamber specialising in mental capacity law and mental health law. And, and I'm emphasising that latter aspect today um, because I'm really, really pleased to be joined in the shed. Actually, again, a repeat visitor. It's a real joy to have in the shed with me today, uh, Lade Smith. Um, if you haven't already heard the previous interview that I did with you or discussion I did with, with, with Lade, please all race off and listen now. I'm assuming you're not coming back. But Lade, just remind people, um, as it were, who you are, if, if they, they haven't already uh, heard the first podcast. So my name is Lade Smith. I'm a consultant psychiatrist. I'm clinical director of uh, forensic services at the South London and Maudley NHS Trust. And I'm also clinical and strategic director of the National Collaborating Centre for Mental Health at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And I'm also presidential lead for uh, um, race and equality at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And most importantly, probably for um, uh, uh, this in the shed, I um, was involved in developing the uh, proposals for the um, in international, international, sorry, the independent uh, mental health at review chaired by um, Simon Wesley and uh, which some of the recommendations of which have um, uh, made their way into the new mental health at reforms. So uh, what I really wanted to get you in the shed to talk about today was in particular the kind of aspects around well the reforms which we look you know as, as we're recording a kind of sort of draft mental health bill being looked at through parliament but the aspects of the reforms thinking about in particular making advanced statements and it's really I'd love your take on kind of where we are at the moment, because obviously we're looking to, 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 to embed them in different ways. But look, just give me a, a, your take on the kind of the scenario now and, and your views on their importance. OK, so um, I, ca I I'm, cannot tell you how important advanced statements are. Um, they just just for people to be clear, you'll hear people talk about different terms. So people talk about advanced statements, advanced directives, advanced agreements, advanced choice documents. And in the reforms, they'll probably be called advanced choice documents. The reason they are so important is this. For years, people have been trying to find some mechanism, some method, some model of how to reduce mental health at detentions, because you will you know, Alex, and uh, many of your listeners will know, but others may not, that in the past uh, 20 or so years, rates of detentions in the Mental Health Act have trebled. I mean, they've gone from something like, you know, uh, kind of 12 to 15,000, right up to 54,000. That is just incredible. And it's, it's, it's not good for anybody, actually. It's clinically not good. Um, obviously, there were people who were concerned about the ethics and the morality of that. And frankly, it's economically not good either because it just it costs a lot of money. It's much more expensive to detain someone than it is to uh, treat them in the community if you can manage to do so. Anyway, um, people have tried various things with, to try and reduce the um, detention of the Mental Health Act, to try things like um, community treatment orders, actually. It was thought that community treatment orders would reduce, reduce detentions. In fact, all that's happened is that they've just increased the number of community treatment orders and detentions have gone up anyway. Uh, people have tried um, things like uh, uh, intensive community treatment. Um, that hasn't really worked either. Uh, people thought that uh, 
or the home treatment teams would make a difference, you know, making a big difference to what happens when people go into crisis. That has made a difference to the number of in uh, informal admissions. So it does it does impact on informal admissions, but they don't impact on detentions. The only thing that has been found to actually reduce detentions are advance statements. And not only do they reduce detentions, but they can reduce detentions under the Mental Health Act by about 20, almost 25%, about 23 to 25%, which is pretty amazing. It is. Can you just, just walk me through or walk, walk somebody who is just trying to kind of understand the logic there? Because how does it make an advanced statement relate to reducing detention? Good question. Very good question, actually. Um, so uh, what we think happens is this. So just to, just to be clear, an advanced statement is something that you make after you've been detained before Mm -hmm. and when you're well and you're stable you will make a a, um if you like a a document that outlines your wishes and preferences should you become unwell again yeah and you don't just do this by yourself you do this with the help of you know people who you trust your friends family maybe the team that you've been in your clinical team that you've been involved with and um, what you will do is sit down with them, come up with a sensible, realistic plan uh, should you get into a state of extremis that usually might result in you being detained in the Mental Health Act. And it seems to be that with it's, there's probably a number of things that go on. Number one, um, if people take notice of your advanced statement and it's a sensible one, then hopefully uh, when you say to them, I am much more likely to comply if when you come with um you know the ambulance and the police if my mum's there i'll know that these that the, these are actually really ambulance and police and they're not you know aliens who are just pretending to be you know the police and the ambulance people well, and so uh, you, i'm more, maybe i'm more likely to comply and i'm less likely to fight try and fight people off um it also looks like just in the development of the advanced statement, there's more, I think the individual has more say and has more control. Mm-hmm. And I think, this is my view, that that provides better, a better therapeutic relationship and better understanding of what the individual's mores are, uh, the, you know, what, what motivates them. And that better understanding for the community, the, the clinical team that's looking after them, means that they uh, they probably treat the person in a, diff- a different way because they know them better. We don't know exactly what the mechanisms are, but we do know it works. And to be honest with you, it's I think it's good psychiatry. I mean, if, if there are people who are working like this anyway, so it should be easier for many people. If you're, if you're doing your job well already, then essentially this is a mechanism that helps you to further develop the therapeutic relationship. Yeah. And then one aspect... I'm really interested in just sort of teasing out is the extent to which they play out in different communities with different types of people. Because, I mean, as you know, I don't need to tell you, Latte, because of all the work that you led on, it really led on in the review. I mean, obviously, one of the huge concerns that's kind of hasn't been mentioned so far, but just bring it out, is the massively disproportionate use of the Mental Health Act amongst, in particular, Black people. And I'm really interested in just... in, in 
Do we have any sense of whether the, these mechanisms of advanced statements might be particularly helpful in this context? Or, I mean, just sort of help, help me with, and, and listeners with some of that thinking. Well, people will be pleased to hear that advanced statements work for everybody, but mm-hmm. they particularly work well for black people for some reason. And um, the evidence seems to be that the black people feel that it helps to them to feel more in control of what's going on. Mm-hmm more understood and people have used the word empowered they feel more empowered and I'm sure that is to do with the fact that they've that they feel that someone's listening to them about what their needs and, and requirements are the other thing is that it looks like advanced statements particularly are, are particularly cost effective for black people so there's a really nice um, graph uh, just showing cost effectiveness of um, advanced advanced statements um, by ethnicity and and actually it doesn't really make that much difference in terms of um white patients and south asian patients but it makes a really big difference when it comes to black patients so it looks like it's it's cheaper so it's one of those oh that's a no-brainer not only do they work not only are they acceptable they're clinically you know much better and they're cheaper you know it makes everything cheaper it's it's one of those things that the question actually you should be asking me alex is why aren't we using them more well, I'm going to ask you that very question because I wanted to I want to sort of locate the context. But I, given everything you've just said about, I mean, in fact, you actually you, your conclusion is a no brainer, at least in relation to some context. But why, why is this not just happening day in, day out, up and down the country? Well, um, at the moment, um, we are doing uh, a study trying to work that very thing out. So we've been very lucky to have been given some money by the Morsi charity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are try- looking at, in- so it's one thing to ha- to know, the re- just to say, there are four really big studies from across the world uh, that show that advanced statements work and work well. Despite the fact that in certain jurisdictions, like in Scotland, in the USA, they've been brought into legislation, advanced statements still aren't used. So the question is, why aren't they used? And the, the research that we're doing is to, is really looking at what factors support implementation of advanced choice documents or advanced statements? What we found is that people just don't seem to know about them. Mm. Staff don't know about them. Patients don't know about them. That's one of the big ones. So there's a big issue around awareness. So um, hopefully lots of people will be listening to this and then they'll find out about them. Uh, there is the, the from the staff point of view, there are things there are things to do with oh, people are, the, these patients are going to ask for impossible, unrealistic things. You know, people are going to say, "I don't ever want to take any medication," even though we know that medication helps them. Or they'll say they want Reiki healing, and uh, instead of medication, and we just can't offer that. And so, people the, from the staff point of view, it's we're, we're not going to be able to deliver the thing that the person wants because in, inevitably, it'd be unreasonable. It looks like patients feel that, that they can't trust staff to um, actually implement what they what they ask for. So they think there's no point completing them. They um, don't know how to complete them actually because it it's a we've been doing uh, you know focus groups with uh, patients who've been detained previously and and their carers and what patients have said is um, actually uh, number one we didn't know about these things and number two. Um, we don't know what's available and what what's realistic for our treatments. And so there's quite a lot of education that needs to be done. And then there's how do I fill this document in any way? 
Yeah. So there's, there's, there's a, quite a lot of training. And what we've realized as a result of our preliminary work is that we not only need training for staff, but we need training for patients and carers. In Number one, in the basics of what these things are, but then also some experiential training. So, you know, actually sitting down and, and, and practicing how to complete a document with all the people that would be important to complete it. <clears throat> Excuse me. The other thing is, let's say you, you can manage to complete a really excellent document that everyone agrees is, is workable and, and doable. Um, then you have to be sure that it's available should mm. you become well. And that's the next bit. How do you make sure that this document is available to all the people who need to see it when you're going into crisis? And that might include the local emergency department, uh, the local crisis teams or the crisis team, wherever you happen to pitch up. Um, maybe even the police, as well as you, your family, any carers that you have and your clinical team. So that's the next bit. How do we make sure it gets disseminated more widely? Digital will help, I think, in that. Yeah. I mean, as you've been talking, I've been sort of, because as you know, I'm a lawyer, and I've been sort of going through my head, as it were, almost, well, what bits would be helped by having, you know, assuming we get something which looks like the draft mental health bill through onto the statute books, which will give... Well, as it stands, it will give effectively a statutory weight if you have made such documents. It will really, you know, help with the kind of, is anyone going to listen? There will be, there will be a statutory weight. So I've been sort of going through, well, which bits of law are going to help and which bits aren't really about law at all? And I mean, some, I mean, it's a, that, that resume you just gave is really interesting that day in terms of the different aspects of the kind of law practice. Just some of it sounds like time, some of it money, some of it, you know, those kind of aspects. And I'm just... I'm wondering in terms of, you know, as we move forward for whatever it is, September 22, and we're moving forward, what, what do you think the kind of biggest priorities are in terms of trying to embed this idea, in trying to you know, actually make these kind of statements, you know, for all, all the benefits you've described, you know, economic, but actually most important, the benefit of people, you know, what's, what do you think the most important priorities are and how can we kind of, how can we help? Well, um, as I said, awareness raising. Yeah. Because... Uh, those people who are aware of these things think they probably don't work. Right. And so um, there's awareness range. They actually they can work and they do work. And these are the these are the things that we think will help you to implement them. So that's the work that we're doing. This is the kind of if you like the implementation guidance. This is how you do it. I do think that the uh, when the legal the legal stuff is important. They're there already, but. Uh, this everyone's aware that there are mental health act reforms and so if people are um got, you know uh, um signposted to this bit that says in law you may not have realized it but in law it says you are expected to offer someone an advanced an advanced choice document if they've been detained in the past and that's part of your duty then people will start to start to think oh I need to do this and then hopefully they'll think I don't quite know how to do it mm. and they'll take up training to help them to do it so that's where the legal aspects might help frankly legal representatives should be saying to um to uh you know the responsible clinicians like myself um my client was detained uh and now my client is better um I can't see their advance 
statement what's what's that about have you have you helped them have you offered them you know so this a little you know we've got the carrot and maybe a little bit of a, a, a stick from the legal representatives would help too yeah yeah i mean i think it's really it's quite challenging in a way on the way the draft mental health bill stands just at the moment because in it is the recognition if you've made one not in it is the bit you've just identified which is there's a duty on someone to offer and it's interesting that that obviously that was something which you and I were feeling very strongly about on the review that it's really important to make sure there's that offer yeah and the rest of the review recommend that you know and the review recommendations really kind of track that through and it's sort of it's a bit edgy, if I may say, to, to have one half of recognition without offer, because it, it, as, as you've been flagging, it's the offer at one level and the support, because this person's been in contact, very intensive contact. How do we make sure that that we're trying to aim off to make sure that's not happening again by making sure there's support to enable someone to think about making an advanced statement? You know, what's interesting is that um, I can imagine someone sitting around uh the civil servants etc saying oh isn't this aren't we going to be asking them to do a bit much asking them to you know offer uh an advanced choice document and and actually um this would be something that's a little bit like when so some people said to me isn't this just like doing a care plan and I said actually it's really similar process yeah Mm. especially if you do properly co-produced care plans that involve you know, the person's carer and and family and all the rest of it. Yeah, it's a bit like that. So it's not a massive departure from what you do already. I suspect that those people who are worried about it think it is a big departure from what people do already, but it's not. It's very similar to what we do already, except that it's much more effective than what we do already. Yeah. So there's something about, I, I really hope that um, they put into the bill that, there's an expectation to offer this and if you know if you do, if you can't offer it because the person lacks capacity or that you know you've got a really good reason then that's fine so be it but um because it would be so because these things are so helpful not only to the patients but also to the staff looking after the patients i mean it'll in the longer term it'll make our jobs easier yeah i mean i'd also and i just i think i've sort of drawn to a close here but in a way i want to wrap it back to what you were saying a little bit earlier, which is good clinicians are wanting to work like this anyway. So yeah. if this is, I mean, I know a big theme of the, the the review's work was along the lines of nudge theory, you know, support be good people to do what they're doing. And for people who might be, for whatever reason, not doing it, make their lives slightly more difficult to encourage them to do it. So, yeah, no, I think it's, I mean, there's, yeah, we, we as, as everybody says, we will see. But Lade, um, thank you so much again for your time. And anyone who's heard this, please make sure you, and you haven't heard the previous conversation I had with you, which was really thinking around race and mental capacity and and culture and mental capacity. That was a really, really profound discussion, really interesting discussion. Please can everyone go and listen to that as well. Um, I I can't leave this, Lade, without just noting the fact that we're recording this at the point when you are running for president uh, of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. and it would be uh, odd of me to do anything other than to wish you luck uh, with that. So thank you very much indeed, Ladin. Thank you, thank you, and, and, and good luck with your run. Thank you very much indeed for having me. And um, thank you for pointing out the really, really important thing that this is about good clinicians being able to um, do what we were trained to do. Thank you. Brilliant.